Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 20th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Strike action today by 10,000 members of SIPTU was averted in the last minute as emergency talks resulted in the trade union announcing at tea time yesterday that the action was being diverted. Yesterday, the HSE scrambled to contact patients to inform them that their appointments had been cancelled, planned operations and procedures postponed. Today, the HSE is scrambling once again, this time to tell them that uh, yesterday the appointments uh, that were cancelled they're hoping to reschedule. Uh, the hospital system was on the brink of being brought to a standstill because it seems uh, the government won't pay staff wage increases it promised to them last August. Let's talk about this uh, with SIP2 Health Division organiser Paul Bell who's come into the studio with Good morning, us this morning. Good morning to you Paul and thanks for coming into us welcome. today. Uh, where do things stand now? Well, where they stand now, Michael, is that the Workplace Relations Commission requested uh, SIP2, who are involved in this dispute, to defer until next week on the basis that they believed that there is some scope for a negotiated settlement of the issues in question. Uh, We considered that yesterday, uh, and we basically interrogated that information uh, to the best of our ability. Mm. Uh, And out of respect for the Workplace Relations Commission and indeed to try and avert the disruption that would have been caused by such a dispute we said yes okay we will return today Mm. uh, this afternoon to have some discussions with the government partners uh, on the issues in question Which government partners? Well this is one Mm. of the strangest disputes I've ever been involved in. Do you know if there has been an intervention of any description by the Department of Public Expenditure? Oh I believe there has been to what extent, I don't know. I would hope to learn that this afternoon. Uh, remember something, Michael, uh, what emerged during the week uh, was that the Department of Public Expenditure Reform wished to proceed to the Labour Court. Mm. They hadn't been invited there and we hadn't consented to discuss the issue that they had, not the issue overall. They wanted to talk about 
that's the semantics of mm. interpretation. We want to talk about the very Yeah, of well, that's the point that Taoiseach was making in yeah. the doll. He yeah. said it's a question of interpretation. I was asking if uh, the Department of Public Expenditure had intervened at all, because as I understand it, or at least as you've been mm. explaining it, yeah. you have an agreement with the government partners, or at least some of them, yeah. and you don't have an agreement with other partners yes. in government. You have an agreement with the HSE the and the Department, Department of Health, who your members would see as their employers, their yes. direct employers. Yes. Uh, another arm of government, the department which looks after public spending, mm. is saying, I know you agreed to give these fellas a, an increase, mm. but we're not paying for it. Yes. Well, you know something, that's as simple as it is, and it's bizarre, because anybody listening to this interview would say, well, if I'm dealing with my employer, mm. and I have a collective bargaining with my employer, uh, well then, my employer enters into an agreement, he or she said, honour that agreement. Uh, we started off in the bizarre position where the Department of Public Expenditure Reform uh, entered a veto into this process and said, number one, uh, we're not paying. Number two, we don't owe you. Uh, number three, uh, when it really got hot, we'll pay you in 2021 uh, on the basis of a successor agreement to the Public Service Agreement. Mm. Uh, we basically said, as a, as a union representing the lowest paid workers involved in this, we can't do business with you. Mm. Uh, and then, obviously, what has seemed to have happened that the Workplace Relations Commission have been uh, putting pressure mm. on the government to say, listen, you need to come to the table and you need to sort this out. OK. Can I just say that yeah. that's my understanding. That yeah, that's I, I, and my understanding is based on what you've told us. Absolutely. And I've sought to... Uh, Verify Just that. To, to discover yeah. if yeah. there's a counter-argument. Uh, yeah. We asked Fine Gael for a spokesperson. They gave yes. us Bernard Durkin on Monday. Yes. He, he didn't seem to say anything to contradict mm. the points that you're making. Yes. The Taoiseach did say, though, that it's a matter of interpretation. And you're mm. saying today that the department is saying that it's a matter of interpretation. Uh, and the argument seems to be that it's a question of timing, that whilst mm. the HSE and the Department of Health agreed to paying these increases, mm-hmm. it, it didn't agree to doing it last mm-hmm. August or mm-hmm. September or yeah. whenever. That that was a matter for the Department of Public Expenditure to decide on. Mm-hmm. Is that wrong? Uh, what you're saying, mm. repeating what they're saying, yeah. is actually accurate. Right. However, that's not what the agreement is. So just be very clear okay. about that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you, that that's, that's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. What, what is the agreement, though? The agreement basically mm. is, is in job evaluation is that when you complete a job evaluation, mm. if you're deemed to be successful, within an eight-week period, there should be a clear understanding if the employer accepts the outcome. Right. In simple terms. And if they accept the outcome, that date is the date when you get upgraded. And that's November? The, the, say October no. last year. Okay, okay. yeah. Now, November at the latest. At the latest. Though. Okay, mm. fair enough. Mm. I mean, mm. we're in negotiation now. We have to see mm. what they have. To, the, the government have to say about that. That is the way the scheme is structured. So here we are towards the end of June. Yeah. Uh, and you're six, seven, eight mm. months mm. waiting for a pay increase that should have been paid. Well, our members would actually say that there are a longer period than that mm. because the, the agreement was reached in 2015. Mm. That's the Lansdowne Road yeah, agreement. Yes. They, uh, the, the, the Department of Public Expenditure mm. and Reform really could be cast as the villain in this case mm. because they decided to obstruct mm. the implementation of it the application of mm. it. Then there was a further 
Workplace Relations Commission intervention in 2017 mm. and that's the basis of, of the now dispute mm. uh, and the Workplace Relations Commission are reminding the government sorry you signed up here to this agreement and really you should now honour it but every single deadline in that agreement right. had been missed Okay yeah. now as I said the Taoiseach said in the Dáil the other day that it was a matter of interpretation and he was referring to the Lansdowne Road Agreement that was drawn up in 2015 the uh, minister at the time was Brendan Howland, the Minister mm. for Public Expenditure, yes. which is uh, the department you have a, mm. a dispute with mm. now. And he stood up in the door and he said, well, I should know something about the Lansdowne Road Agreement because he oversaw mm. its introduction and mm. its implementation. And he said that it's at odds. You're not honouring the agreement and you're betraying the staff. Yeah. Well, I think that word is a very strong word, betraying. The, 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 the government decided to put their face into this and to confront this group of staff, mm. while in other cases uh, they've done something completely different. In, in well, they're ways. welching on a deal. They're it's it's, bad, a, fa- no, it's the, bad faith. No, absolutely, Michael, I couldn't agree with you more. As presented. I, oh, no, it is. And we did see... Yeah, I mean, all, all, all we've heard uh, in terms of countering your argument is it's a matter of interpretation, and yeah. I'm not sure what that means. Well, what it means mm. is that's a fudge. Right. Like, I mean, mm. this was a game of chicken over the last couple of days, mm. as far as we're concerned. The political system... And I mean that respectfully to everybody involved in, in Dáil Éireann, did not seem to waken up to the fact mm. that this dispute was going to be quite devastating on the service. It was only kind of discovered on Monday. I was quite surprised at that. But in fairness, if you listen to media, if you listen to public discussion, there is a, you know, an informed decision mm. that really it's only doctors and nurses that run the health service. And no disrespect mm. to those professionals, they are absolutely key. But the problem is that the health service has evolved so much in the last 20 years mm. that these other people are now, even though they're described as support staff, mm. most of them are actually offering fairly technical services. Well, you were told by the HSE that the members who were about to strike today were not essential to the service, to the delivery of the service. In fairness, we were never told by the HSE, we were told by the Department of the Department. Public Stretch and mm. Reform, and we mm. have to mm. keep saying that because... Mm. What the Workplace Relations Commission has been doing probably, and I assume Mm. over the last couple of days, is feeling that problem out and saying, Mm. you do understand that while you, as the finance department, Mm. are playing hardball with this, the service is going to suffer, but these people actually have an agreement. And what uh, the government were trying to do was to get this issue into the Labour Court on their terms, to ask the Labour Court to interpret something that other parties had freely entered into. Hmm. Now, that was a, 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 a very serious attempt to frustrate even further a resolution to this dispute. Hmm. And we just said, we cannot live with you with that. It also has implications for a future public service agreement because rightly so, people would say, so you're asking me now to sign up to another one hmm. and yet this one has not been honoured. And that has all the kinds of implications for the state, for the public service and for public service delivery. It's being breached. It has been breached. Right. That's very interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, I heard mm. questions uh, being put to you about mm. uh, the consequences for members of SIP2 for breaching the yes. agreement uh, and if your members yeah. would face penalties, financial sanctions. It's all sanctions, yes. And you're suggesting that it's actually the government which mm. is breaching the agreement. Yes. So are there sanctions for the government, if you're correct? Well, I have to say, Michael, what a brilliant question, because I think that needs to be considered. Uh, what sanction for you? 
what sanction for you to breach the agreement? If it's because an agreement takes yeah. two sides. Uh, 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 and, and if it's sanctioned yeah, yeah. for one side, Absolutely. if it breaches the agreement, yeah. surely uh, yeah. it's equal in terms of how both sides are dealt well, with. Well, in, in a fair world it would be, but it's a very unfair one. Mm. Uh, that question that was posed yesterday to uh, um, Pascal Dunhu, a minister for, for public expenditure, uh, was a very interesting question. And in fairness to the minister, while he didn't directly mm. come out and say he was going to issue sanctions, uh, what was trying to be introduced, I believe, at that time by the government was, uh, well, this idea of blocking you hasn't worked, so now we're going to threaten you. So we clarified it yesterday. If that was the kind of action that was going to be taken against their members, well, then we reserved the right then to escalate our action. And anyway, to be very clear, um, the government have no credibility about issuing sanctions to anybody. Uh, we had a major public service uh, dispute here this year. There was a lot of huffing and puffing from certain government quarters about sanctions. Uh, no sanctions were applied, not that we were encouraging it or anything else, mm. but they weren't applied. So you would then say, well, now I'm going to do this on this group of people. Mm. Uh, now, don't forget, the position that the government have to deal with, whether it's interpretation or not, mm. we are fully co uh, compliant with the public service agreement. And neither the National Oversight Body or the Workplace Relations Commission or anybody has told us yet that we're not. Mm. We, no one has come out of government and said, that's a clear breach, uh, because they can't. Mm. Um, the, the terrible but, thing but, about this... But you are stating clearly yeah. this morning the opposite. Oh, absolutely. It's not, we, 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 we've, there's no breach. We're not, we're not involved in any breach. But how is the government behaving? Uh, badly, <laughs> to be honest. Mm. But you now, believe that they're in breach of oh, abso the agreement? Oh, I, I absolutely believe they're in breach. And I actually think that they know they're in breach. The disappointing thing about this dispute, Michael, is that this issue could have been resolved 10 days ago, not on the eve of a dispute. Well, I think uh, you were in here a couple of months ago yeah, talking absolutely. about this, weren't you? But we said, mm. remember mm. something, we saved notice, and the, the clock is ticking on that. Mm. And again, and I'm not being mm. confrontational, but it has to be reminded that next Tuesday and Wednesday, the clock is ticking towards that. So that means that we have today... I don't think people know what the clock is ticking towards, in yeah. all honesty. Yeah. I mean, you'll be making the point uh, that uh, members in the Department of Public Expenditure said your uh, members are, are not essential to delivering services, uh, and uh, there was a lot of people who seemed to hold that view. That uh, turned on its head yesterday when mm. people realised that people weren't going to get fed in hospital, they weren't going to be brought to theatre, that scopes wouldn't take place, and all this sort of mm. thing. Uh, but uh, we've been hearing from other people working in the hospitals who are not members of SIPTA who say they won't pass the picket. Uh, and that means that when you were going to withdraw the labour of 10,000 people, it could have been far more than that. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about 38 hospitals as well as the Central Mental Hospital and, and St. Hegas, uh, and you're talking about possibly extending it uh, further uh, come Tuesday well, of next week. It, it, well, it, the, the, what we were telling the government yesterday, if you escalate by sanctioning our people, we will then go to other hospitals oh. that we had not balloted and the reason why there was so much um, difficulty over the last couple of days, we decided to take matters into our own hands with the health service executive and then start to agree contingency mm. to make sure that patients would be fed, that people would be seen, that had to be seen. But there would have been disruption to the service, let's be very clear. That problem remains. Um, and we don't want to get into that business. We are saying you need to come to the table and negotiate with us. Now, mm. today, we'll start that process. Tomorrow, there'll be more engagement. 
Uh, I have no understanding that we will continue over the weekend. Uh, we said we are available to do that. Mm. Uh, if you strike Monday, next week, though, it could go to the maternity hospitals, go to the uh, children's hospitals. It will not. So it will not. Ex- no, Michael, it will not extend any further than the hospitals that were that the we have. Now, we do have. We do have uh, one uh, children's hospital involved, mm-hmm. but again, every single request that was made to ensure that uh, patients received the treatments that they needed, we were clarifying mm. that will happen. Like at the end of the day, most people out there would understand. SIPTU does not take strikes on like this unless it has to. Yeah. And the problem is that this strike now for many of our members, I think all of them would say it's about respect. And that when the Taoiseach did indicate this week, look, I'm looking at this matter now. I'm listening to what's being said. Um, and then the Minister for Finance did say belatedly, look, we respect the work that's being performed. Uh, there's an understanding now. Well, we're being listened to. The frustration is is that you should not have to threaten to close down the health service to get your employer or your employer's funder to talk to you. And that is not correct and it's not good business. If we were dealing with a private organisation and they were behaving like that, we'd be in here condemning it. And in fact, there'd be mm. people standing in, 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 in the government's benches in Dollar and saying, oh, this is, this is a terrible thing. We should do something about that. Um, but I have to say the political system does understand this. Right across the spectrum, we've briefed every party that we could brief on where we stand. Now, we're entering into negotiation, Michael. It doesn't mm. mean we're entering into of... Uh, uh, I heard uh, Mary Lou MacDonald say yeah. yesterday that the government was dishonest. I heard Micheál Martin yes. uh, talk about breaching the agreement. Yes. I heard Brendan Howland talking uh, about the government mm. betraying the members yeah. and so on. So there would uh, appear to be support from the opposition parties. I think what this is the support for, the support for people who honour their agreements. And the support for people who are saying, listen, you need to recognise what I do. Remember something, Michael. The amount of money involved in this is is achievable. It's $16.2 million for a year. Mm. It's $8 million for six months. Mm. That's for 6,200 And that's 16, 16 million is a lot of money. Uh, and, yeah, but that's no. money that was promised to you uh, in comparison to the 50 million that they pulled out of the sky that uh, they found for the nurses because the nurses made a pay claim that hadn't been promised to them. Well, then our, our colleagues in the North mm. Midwifery Unions would say that they had an understanding that they could proceed with that. Mm. Uh, in other words, that they weren't in breach of the agreement and that somewhere along the line there would be a settlement. Uh, but having said what you've said, the government never budgeted for that. Mm. Well, and they that had being not, the point. And they had not budgeted to pay these monies, even though the health service executive said, this is coming online now. You have gone on from 2015 about this issue. A day will come and the day has now arrived. Okay. That's where we are. All right. Thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Paul Bell, SIP2's health division organiser. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Alcohol sales in Scotland have fallen to the lowest level they've ever been at in uh, the last 25 years at least and uh, they have fallen 3% in uh, the course of uh, the last year. In the last year, minimum unit pricing has been a factor in alcohol sales in Scotland and uh, this has been welcomed by groups here who are making the argument to introduce minimum pricing for alcohol. Sheila Gilheny is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland and uh, joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. The volume of pure alcohol, you're saying, has dropped by 9% in Scotland over the course of the last nine years. 
Yes, that's right. And uh, well, in particular, the the we can really see the uh, special drop in the last year, where it went down by three percent. And as against that, in England and Wales, over the same period, it went up by two percent. So I think that really, you know, and in England and Wales, the MUP isn't there. Um, it's it's the first indicator. We won't say it's like the full indication of the the way minimum unit pricing work, but it certainly is a very positive indicator that um, MUP does have an impact on alcohol consumption. It's a it's a measure, you know, which is very much targeted at um, you know two groups: uh, people who are drinking very 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 high levels, high strength, low um, low cost alcohol, and I would say young people as well who would be very price sensitive. And um, it's something that we're very keen to see being fully introduced here in Ireland. It was actually part of the Public Health Alcohol uh-huh. Act, which um, was passed by the Rock this last October. But we're still waiting for some sections of that act to be commenced, and this is one of them that, that we're waiting for. And we would really see, especially when you can see the, the positive effects that it's having in Scotland, we'd be calling on Minister Simon Harris to introduce it as soon as possible here in Ireland. Right, uh, and uh, you believe uh, that there's a, a direct link uh, between making it more expensive to buy alcohol and people drinking less? Yes, we, we do. And, you know, Scotland is the first country in the world to introduce it right across the country, but actually there have been other um, jurisdictions, you know, for example, some provinces in Canada, which have, um, you know, done similar work around uh, MUP, and they have seen that, you know, in you know, basically the MUP, and if you put a rise on the MUP, you will see a corresponding reduction in consumption. But also you'll see a reduction in harms, you know, for example, things like the number of hospital admissions in British Columbia after a 10% rise in their MUP, they saw a, a 9% reduction in hospital admissions from alcohol uh, problems. So it, it's it, this is very much, um, it's a move to reduce uh, alcohol consumption with a view towards improving the health of our citizens. Right. Uh, which citizens, though, the ones who have plenty of money or the ones who can barely afford to buy what would be a reasonable and responsible amount of alcohol? Well, you know, they, you will find that the majority of people actually, you know, will not really be hugely affected by MUP if you were drinking at what would be termed low-risk guidelines, as, as suggested by the HSE on their Ask About Alcohol website. If you're drinking at that kind of level, which would be like 14 standard drinks for a woman in a week, and, um, oh, sorry, excuse me, 11 standard drinks for a woman in a week, 17 for a, a man, um, you know, really minimum unit price is not going to have any effect on you. Where it really does have the impact is on... Uh, you know, people drinking at very, very harmful levels. And this is wh- where, what we're really trying to, you know, a- a address. Mm. And MUP, uh, just for people listening, is minimum unit pricing, which is this minimum pricing that we're talking about, which would uh, basically bring uh, the cost of a, a can of beer, which you can be bought now for less than a euro up to about two euros, is it? Yes. So basically, it, it is that one euro um, at any standard drink would have to cost uh, at least one euro. Um, now, you know, just to give you some examples mm. of where you can see pricing is really, really ridiculously cheap. Um, we do an annual price survey, and last year we would have seen bottles of gin, for example, being on sale at uh, twelve euro fifty under minimum unit pricing. That would come up to twenty one uh, euro. And mm. I think when people, if you look at it, the idea of being able to buy what I would describe as a lethal amount of alcohol for pocket money prices, I don't think that there's um, anybody could really object it from a public health point of view. Well, maybe not from a public health point of view, but from a consumer perspective, uh, it's a a good bargain. I mean, I'd know people who'd go out and buy two or three bottles of gin if it cost them £12.49, and they might have it next Christmas or the Christmas after that. 
Well, if they're drinking at, at you know, what I would call low-risk levels, uh, an increase in that price and their overall consumption is not really huge. But for the people who are drinking at very, very risky levels, yeah. I think we really do need to address this. But, but if they're drinking at low levels, why can't they save €30? Euro? Well, I think sometimes we just really do have to look at the population as a whole and try to kind of look at, see, what, what is the best thing to, to do. Mm. And we have seen in surveys that there has been overwhelming support from right across the country, actually, where the public do want to see a reduction in alcohol harm. I mean, we've only got to go out on our streets on a mm. Saturday night to see the impact of... You oh, know, I know, and there is absolutely no argument with that. But I mean, I, the, the other argument is uh, that if you're an addict, if you're an alcoholic, uh, you'd do anything rather than go, forego your alcohol. Uh, I mean, you're going to go without food, uh, you won't pay your rent, you'll do whatever it takes uh, to get whatever it is you want to drink. Uh, and if uh, minimum pricing means uh, that the kids go to school hungry, the kids go to school hungry. If you're an alcoholic and you're very wealthy, minimum pricing has no impact on you. But if you're on a low income and you're rubbing pennies together and you like a bottle of wine maybe at the weekend, well, then the bottle of wine might have to go because of the introduction of this. And maybe that's what's happening in Scotland. Well, what I would say is that if you're seeing alcohol consumption actually dropping, then you are seeing that people are being price sensitive. So I really wouldn't mm. say that it's But true which today. people? Which people are being price sensitive? Is it the ones who can barely afford it at the cheap prices and are doing themselves no harm, or is it uh, the people who are doing themselves harm and continue to buy it and send their kids to school without any food? The, the figures from Scotland that have just been released actually are population uh, total p- figures, so they, mm-hmm. they're not broken down exactly. by, um, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, individual and social mm. economic background. There will be further research. I know that they are looking at that and they'll probably be able to give you, you know, more detailed figures on mm. that. But you understand uh, the logic of my argument, don't you? I, 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 I hear what you're, you're saying, but what I would say is that we do see where, for example, in Canada, where in a number of provinces where minimum unit pricing was also introduced, that there was a reduction in actual harm. So, for example, in British Columbia, a, a 10% rise in their MUP led to a 9% reduction in hospital admissions uh, related to alcohol. So that is showing you that the very people who are being affected and who are drinking harmfully are, you know, that their level of, of harm is being reduced by MEP. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, a strong argument that has to be said. We'll leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Sheila Gilhaney is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, we've heard uh, the arguments uh, from Sinn Féin and uh, the Restaurants Association of Ireland on uh, the programme for and against the introduction of uh, the Sinn Féin bill, which would make staff entitled to, to hold on to their tips. The motion passed in the Shannon uh, by a huge majority. It went uh, to the Dáil on Tuesday and will be voted on today. It was also raised in the Dáil during leaders' questions on Tuesday. And we'll hear uh, a little bit of uh, the contribution uh, from Independence for Change TD, Joan Collins, who was speaking under privilege. When I first met a group of workers from the Ivy restaurant on Dawson Street, I was shocked, absolutely shocked by what they told me. It wasn't just a question of low pay and not receiving their tips. It was a complete lack of respect of the staff by a very aggressive employer. This was, this was, um, there was even CCTV cameras in makeshift staff changing rooms. That has since been removed, but there is evidence of ongoing surveillance of staff, both audio and visual. 
Because of the publicity surrounding the ivy, customers are asking staff, if I pay a service charge, will you get it? Staff cannot give a straight answer for fear of retribution or possible dismissal. I am more shocked now that some of these practices are widespread in the hospitality sector. A survey has shown that one third of workers, one in three workers, do not receive the tips that customers have given in recognition of good service. Independence for Change TD, Joan Collins speaking in the doll there and on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Deputy Collins. Thanks uh, for joining us. I think uh, morning, there's uh, a, a lot of people who would support uh, the principle of uh, the Sinn Féin bill. You're obviously one of them. Uh, and uh, we heard uh, some of the reasons why they're Hello. Hello, Joan Collins. Yeah, I say we hear we heard some of the reasons why there uh, you've a, a lot of concerns relating uh, to the terms and the conditions that people are being pl- employed under in hospitality. Absolutely. Um, as I made a point in the Doyle speech there, that I've met these workers, particular workers, in earlier this year, and the experience of these workers is absolutely horrendous. Um, and it generally, the point I made as well, I believe it was part of the the last 20 years of a rollback of workers' rights when we've seen bogus self-employed, zero-hour contracts, and this type of activity then where it looks like it's much more prevalent than we thought mm. that um, big restaurants are taking tips that customers think they're giving to the staff for their service, are actually pocketing it or even using it to part pay wages which is absolutely outrageous. And this is the second time you've raised that issue in the Dáil. Uh, last time round, I think you named a, a number of restaurants uh, who were yeah. using tips to make up people's wages. Deirdre, Deirdre Falvey has done some very good articles in the Irish Times and she's mentioned um, restaurants at the Hard Rock Café. The staff have actually come out and, and, and spoken publicly on that. Um, and other restaurants under the um, under the E&E, I think it is, Corporation, um, that are doing the same thing. And then the report from the U- Union Students of Ireland and Sinn Féin in the One Galway campaign, um, the, all the indications are is that at least one in three workers are not getting their tips, that people think, mm. customers think they're giving to the staff in good faith, you know. Mm. And you're getting fairly big bills in some of these places. I mean, they're not particularly cheap uh, places uh, that you're talking a- about and people would think, well, you know, I've paid a-, a lot there, but I know that the staff are low paid and mm-hmm. uh, that they're relying on tips, uh, so they tend to tip for that reason. They do, uh, and that's, I mean, it's not compulsory in Ireland to um, pay tips or anything like that, but generally, if you, if you get good service, you generally say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give 10% or whatever is normally mm. the, the norm you'd give in relation to a tip to a, a waiter or a waitress, um, and then you'd, you'd assume then they divide it up with the back staff and all that type of thing that they do. Um, which some, some do I, and some don't, yeah. Some do or some yeah. don't, but it would have been, I remember people working in the west, restaurant trade 20 years ago, and that's what they would have done, put it on to a tip jar, and then they divide it out among themselves and the back staff then at the end of the week or nightly or whatever they do. So, I mean, but and, and, and the point you made is that these are low-paid workers. Mm. I mean, they're not well-paid workers. Um, many of them now have to get paid for their own taxis at home at night when they work beyond 12 o'clock. Um, the rents in Dublin now, um, if you're in a family, um, all these obviously things eat, eat into your income, you know, and if you're on 980 an hour, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a livable wage mm. in the city anyway or in most parts of the country. 
Yeah, well, it seems like an incredible waste of a rockless time. It's uh, spent a couple of years uh, making its passage uh, through the Oireachtas, uh, has passed through the Shannon, it's going to pass through the Dáil today, mm-hmm. uh, but the government is uh, opposing it. It's going to introduce its own bill of sorts, uh, which uh, some might argue was written for them by the Restaurants Association. Uh, and we'll hear why now, just uh, mm-hmm. if you bear with us for a minute. Yeah, here's, sure. Here's Taoiseach Leo Bradker. Uh, the reason why we don't support the bill that's being put forward um, is, quite frankly, because we believe it'll be counterproductive. Uh, While I'm sure it was not the intention of the authors, uh, the effect of the bill, we believe, uh, will be to cause people's tips to be taxed uh, and counted as income and used against and potentially counted against them when they apply for a medical card uh, or when they apply for social housing uh, or when they apply for things like the family income supplement. I'm sure that was not the intention, um, but that is uh, our interpretation of that bill. And let me explain why that is our interpretation of that bill. Uh, our interpretation of that bill is that it changes the nature of tips. At the moment, in the vast majority of pubs and restaurants, uh, the tips are managed by the staff. This bill would require the employer to manage the tips, and that means it goes through payroll, becomes subject to tax, becomes subject to social welfare, uh, and therefore could be counterproductive. I don't believe for a second it's the intention of Sinn Féin or the left to cause workers to have their tips taxed, but that would be the effect of your legislation. That's why we don't support it. What do you make of that argument, Joan Collins? Well, Michael, um, the Taoiseach obviously doesn't doesn't know um, uh, that under the present law and under the present revenue laws, you're supposed to pay tax on on tips. It's an income. That's if you get Um, them. Maybe the Taoiseach doesn't tip. Uh, maybe he doesn't exactly. Uh, I don't know <laughs> what he does, um, but that's that's the reality of the situation. So we're not changing the situation by bringing in this legislation. Um, and what we prefer to see is that the workers control their tips, not the management. Mm. Um, and the, the the bill allows for that uh, in relation to the key thing about that this bill is that at least that the tips will go to yeah. the employees, mm. to the workers. Yeah, well, I mean. Management. I, I, I'm sure the Taoiseach does tip. I mean, I was being facetious. I, I'd be very surprised if he, he didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's a, a decent individual. He knows that you tip low-paid workers uh, and that they're relying on tips. Uh, but uh, he also knows that they don't pay tax, and that's the point he was making there. So what are you suggesting but, is that we continue with a nod and a wink culture? There must be a way of formalising it so that you can tip people and they don't have to pay tax. Well, I think the way to formalise this is that there's a campaign to get decent pay in the the restaurant, Mm -hmm. um, uh, in the the hospitality sector. um, And over the last 20 years, there's been a drilling down of those wages um, uh, by big, big um, restaurant owners and smaller ones. But there are decent restaurant owners as well that respect um, the the workers and and make sure that they do get their tips. Mm. And these companies are actually forcing the smaller, decent companies or the, or the other um, restaurants to actually change their, their practice in relation to this. But it, unfortunately, it has come to this because the experience of the workers in the Ivy was that they were told they were going to get their tips on top of the contracted wage. Mm. They didn't. They got one or two months they did um, in the start um, before Christmas. Then they changed it to a credit card. Mm. The credit card tip went straight to the, the, um, the management and they, div- they divvied it out into their wages. And then when we raised in the Doyle and Simon Coveney, the tarnisher, came out and said that it's illegal to use tips mm. to pay part wages, the IV then decided to scrap all tips and bring in the service charge for all tables because heretofore it was only for tables over five, it was 12.5%. Mm. Now mm. all tables in the IV get five and a half, get, have a 
a service charge of 12.5%. So right. they are consciously, I mean, um, they're consciously cutting across workers getting the tips that they that customers think that they're they're going to them to the workers mm. and I think I think this bill mm. I, I actually would question whether we should ban service charges because I mean what other industry would you walk in to buy a t-shirt or something like that and they, they have a 12.5% tax yeah. on it you mm. know well, you, no, there, there's a, there is a good argument for service charges as well I mean if you get a, a group of 12 people and uh, the bill comes uh, to 120 euro everybody gives a, a tenner and walks out and doesn't think about tipping well, not at all. I mean, generally, if, you, if you're... Ah, you do. That, I, I mean, that's why I, they were... In that, my, that, that, family, my family always go... Oh, we, we go out, we always throw in... Absolutely, but, but I mean, that's, that's, that's the reason why they were introduced. Yeah, but I mean, OK... Mm. If that's or somebody case, else keep, pays the bill and keep, other people don't over, tip. Keep it over know. seven or something like yeah, that, you know. Yeah, but yeah. The, the, the crucial thing is, Michael, is that, that people would be of the understanding that that service charge mm. is going to the worker for the service they provided uh, when they waited for them, you know. But there's a lot of people who have income that's not taxable. Is it not just a question of changing the tax law so that uh, tips are not taxable? That could be the case, yeah. I, 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 I'm open. I think when we put this bill, hopefully get passed today, I know mm. the, the Minister has said she's going to put a money message on it, which means it's not going to go... She's blocking the, the, the bill in the committee. Um, that's Regina Doherty, is it? Regina Doherty, mm. yeah. She's uh, announced mm. there um, the debate on... Tuesday that she was going to uh, put a money message on it, so it's not going to go anywhere. Um, it's her her bill or no bill. Um, but at any point, hopefully, whatever happens, that a bill will be brought in and that we can debate these issues on the committee because I think there are a lot of questions need to be asked around it. All right, I I, I think workers on nine eighty an hour are not paying tax anyway at the moment. Mm. <laughs> the wages are so low they're not paying tax on it. So I, I, I think I think in Germany they actually um did away with um paying tax on tips officially. Mm. Well that's what so, I'm suggesting, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I mean I've been reading up on, on things like that and, and trying to you know, so when yeah. it does go through committee stage, at least you can amend it and have a good debate about these things and look at the whole question of service charge and how okay. they're used. Well, it's going to pass through the doll today, I'm sure, with a huge majority, uh, and, mm-hmm. and then we'll gather dust. Okay. We'll, well, the Minister has committed that she's going to bring in her bill within yeah. the next couple of weeks, so we'll be putting huge pressure on her, if that's the case, to bring that head of bill forward for the break, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Independence for Change TD, uh, Joan Collins. Michael Reed on LMFM. And let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Mary got in touch in relation to the strike action being called off today and she wonders what good was a calling off the strike at the last hour when the disruption was already going to happen. Do the hospital workers not care about the patients and how this would have affected them and now there's a possibility there could still be a strike. It's not fair that operations are being postponed. Okay. So Mary, dear, Strong thoughts there. Yes, mm. and dear, I dear, imagine the workers do care about the patients. Uh, I'd imagine they care quite a lot about them, actually. Yeah. Deirdre and mm. Kells, listening to your interview, glad that the strike is called off, but feels that it should never have been allowed in the first place. She says, this is sick people we are talking about who are going to be affected. People have to wait long enough for operations and appointments, and I don't feel the country should be held to ransom in this way. I think the government has to step in. I know that the workers need to be paid more and I understand all of that but the bottom line is the sick are going to be affected. Mm. So whose fault is it? 
Well, that's the question, yeah. isn't yeah, it? I suppose, She's know, saying the government needs to step in mm, and, and solve it once mm, and for all. Yeah, well, I suppose, uh, I mean, the trade union is uh, saying the government needs to honour its, its commitment, commitment yeah. uh, that it has promised to pay these increases yes. and now it's saying it's not going to pay them. Well, Jim says, I'd love to know uh, how much these hospital so workers, hospital support workers are currently being paid. Why? <laughs> Just would like to know. Okay, well, I mean, like to know. yeah. So, so, some of them are fairly low paid. Uh, I think uh, I heard some of them are on twenty four thousand. Uh, depends, of course, on what you're talking about. Some of them are lab technicians and uh, uh, doing some very specialised work. Uh, there's cleaners, there's porters, uh, there's uh, people working right a- across the board in every That's department right. outside of uh, the medical end of it uh, who are involved in this dispute. Michelle from Navin says, "Give the workers their pay. They wouldn't be going out on strike." only for they are not getting what they are entitled to. They have been left with no choice but take this action and fair play at least they are engaging in the talk process. Nobody wants to be on the picket line. Mm. Says Michelle. Uh, Another listener, Michael, were appointments cancelled and operations cancelled? If yes, then they shouldn't have called off the strike at the last minute, I feel, because the same disruption was caused as if they were Mm. on strike. Yeah, I mean, I I don't understand what the HSE were at. Uh, This uh, was long flagged. Uh, Strike notice has to be given, as is usually the case, uh, and uh, the negotiations took place. Uh, There was no contingency plans put in place uh, up until Tuesday. I think those discussions uh, started, uh, and then yesterday the HSE in a scramble started cancelling patient Mm. appointments and operations. Uh, Surgeons were told uh, to clear up their lists and all that sort of thing. Uh, And uh, then the next thing, uh, they're back today scrambling again to try and reschedule those appointments. Yes, and I mean Mm. you can understand how people say that was due, Mm. you know, that were waiting a long time, how Mm. they would feel frustrated. Of course. And maybe that's Mm. what's coming across Mm. here. Mm. Uh, Another listener says that a solution was found in relation to the nurses and their grievance in this instance I feel that the workers are as are equally as important the support workers they all do a job that's valuable and is essential to the running of hospitals if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Okay, well, today is World Refugee Day. The Irish Refugee Council says it's a time for reflection and forward thinking. Let's uh, talk about what this day means in this country with Caroline Reid, who's uh, the communications officer with the Irish Refugee Council. You're looking back on some of the progress uh, that there has been made uh, in terms of dealing with people seeking asylum and refuge in this country and indeed uh, at how we can continue in that vein and improve the lives of people who come to this country today, Caroline. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, So I guess for us, it's a day um, to look at, I guess, some of the positives and some of the successes and the progress that has been made in Ireland um, and to acknowledge that, but also, I guess, to see where there's also maybe still some gaps or or shortfalls um, in the kind of supports and services that are available to people um, once they arrive to Ireland. Okay, many of uh, those uh, gaps and shortcomings have been outlined to the Justice Committee of, of late. Uh, we've uh, had some discussion on the programme about direct provision, uh, the ongoing system of food and board that is given to people who come to this country looking for asylum. There's been improvements in some respects of that system, but uh, a lot of people continue to question why it's still in place to begin with, because it's 20 years since it was first introduced and it should have only been in place for six months. Well, that's it. I guess initially when it was set up, it was envisioned that people would be spending no longer than six months in the centres. But um, as you know, the reality is people on average are probably spending two to three years. Um, At the moment as well, we're seeing a bit of an emergency situation in terms of not having um, the capacity to accommodate the number of people seeking asylum in Ireland. And that would be due to a number of reasons. Um, there's a slight increase in the numbers and there's also a great difficulty for people who secure their status trying to move out of centres because obviously at the moment with the wider housing crisis trying to secure affordable rental properties is is very difficult and then also what we're seeing is a number of centres have been closed and I guess that's Mm. another a symptom of the type of setup that we have at the moment is that it's very much at the whims of the market and at the moment um, uh, like the people who own these properties are either selling them um, or are moving into different business provisions because maybe there's more profit to be made elsewhere. So basically at the moment the system is very, very uh, stretched. Um, we've got over 700 people living in emergency accommodations. Mm. That would be in um, ad hoc hotels and bed and breakfasts across the country. So it's it's just another kind of, uh, you know, another sign and another symptom of a system that isn't really working and, and isn't working for the people and isn't working really for the government either. Two really contrasting stories uh, that people might uh, read about in uh, the papers uh, today, Caroline. The Garden Party, the president hosted yesterday at uh, the Auras uh, to celebrate uh, the work uh, that people do who support uh, asylum seekers. 
speakers and another story that was told to, to that Justice Committee that I was speaking about a moment ago where a hundred asylum seekers were shipped like cattle out of Tracy's Hotel in Carrick Macross late last year because the owner of the hotel wanted to host a wedding there and they were moved elsewhere. Well, this is um, the people who were in Tracy's at that time. It would have been one of the emergency accommodation setups that I spoke about. So I guess when the government entered into kind of short-term contracts with hoteliers who already have bookings in advance, this is the result of what happens is that people are basically moved out of the hotel for maybe the weekend so the hotel can accommodate their bookings and then they're moved back in. The other big problem with, I think, the the situation with emergency accommodation is that people are very much kind of left to their own devices. So they're not getting linked in with the supports that they would need in terms of maybe medical care. They might not necessarily be um, receiving the weekly allowance that people would usually receive while in the asylum process. And they're very much kind of disconnected from any, you know, community um response or supports or services because of the nature like you know these the hotels and, and bread and breakfasts in use are like kind of scattered all throughout the country and um, but what we have seen is fantastic kind of mobilization mm. at the community level in particular areas where members of the public have kind of come together to see how they can support people in this situation so i guess in that instance information is key so like yeah. when a community approaches us we can tell them where the rights and entitlements are well and the deputy can access them. Deputy Secretary General of uh, the Department of uh, Justice Una Buckley said it was unacceptable. She said that the department had contacted the provider, told them it was unacceptable and that if it ever happened again, uh, well then they wouldn't be used uh, to provide direct provision services. Uh, but uh, it's not unique, is it? I mean, we've heard of uh, at least uh, the concern that people would be moved out of uh, their accommodation to make way for overseas visitors coming to see the Pope when he was in Dublin or people coming to St. Patrick's Day celebrations for that matter. Well, this is the thing, I guess, in this respect, they're not necessarily um, under contract in the same way the direct provision centres would be. It's a much more short-term arrangement or contract with the Department of Justice. So, I guess the worry or concern would be that these short-term arrangements could become more long-term, especially as the, like, the capacity issue is there. And like just to yesterday as well, um, or this week, residents in Hatch Hall in Dublin were also notified that their centre will be um, closed in July. So that will be the kind of displacement and dispersal of over 200 people. Um, so like, basically the, the whole reception um, end of the asylum process, direct provision, the way that we're doing it is at a bit of a crisis point. And, you know, like we, you mentioned, it's going to be 20 years in existence um, at the end of this year. That's 20 years of people kind of working, campaigning, doing research, showing how unfit the system is. And now it's reached this kind of crisis point. Um, so what we really, really want to do and what we're working towards ourselves with other NGOs and other stakeholders is looking at um, how we can change our approach and our attitude to how we're accommodating people. Mm. And for us, that would be longer term thinking and longer term investment, because at the moment, when a private contractor decides that they want to sell their property or they want to move into a different business or become mm. a hotel again, the money that was paid out to them, there's, there's no there's no investment for that. It's just and gone. So and it's a lot of money, isn't it, Caroline? $78 million last year on direct provision, $100 million this year, they reckon. And uh, the same official was telling that Justice Committee yesterday that uh, the government has spent $1.25 billion on direct provision since 2001. 
It is like the, it's it's a massive amount of money being spent on it, and there's no real there's, for no long term investment. So when somebody pulls out, they're gone, and that's it. We've nothing okay. kind of to show for it. Whereas if we were investing in more straight mainstream um, social housing. You know, the, the numbers seeking asylum would hopefully maybe go down again if things are a bit calmer at the world at large. But then we'd still have housing that will always have a purpose and a need. So it's about thinking more strategically and thinking about longer term investments that would also afford people basic dignity and rights while they're going through the asylum process here. All right. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Caroline Reid, Communications Officer with the Irish Refugee Council. Now going back to some more of the calls uh, that have come to us, Marie. Tommy from Navin was in touch in relation to the alcohol pricing and he says minimum pricing will bring loads of illegal made drink into the country and potchy and stills will make a big comeback. Then the health services will be put under serious pressure, he feels. Mm-hmm. Peter says there's no doubt that damage is done by those who binge drink on cheap alcohol. But once again, minimum pricing will ruin it for those who don't have a lot of money but like to have a jar at home, drink sensibly and don't overindulge. Why should we be penalised because others are foolish? Okay. So I'll leave that one All right, well, <laughs> as thanks. the last comment. Thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, you can call Marie or Maggie now. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Fianna Fáil are a threat to the RD bypass as they will scrap key road projects given half a chance. It's a dramatic statement, isn't it? Well, I'm only reading what it says in front of me. Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd is on the line. Why did you say that? Good morning, Michael. Well, what Timmy actually said was that... Uh, Timmy Dooley. Yeah, sorry, excuse me, sorry, Timmy Dooley. And need a very significant investment, obviously, in transport, but in public transport rather than on some of the new roads. And he also talks about reprioritizing the investment uh, on roads. So obviously, clearly, Fianna Fáil and government will reprioritize the investment on roads. So you're taking this to mean that uh, Fianna Fáil will scrap the RD bypass? Well, well, what I'm saying is in County Loud, that's the big project. It's going to cost over thirty million, and clearly uh, he is not committed to what's in the in the in the in the plan. That's in our national plan. Fianna Fáil are going to reprioritise, and I'm very concerned, as indeed the people of RD are, indeed the whole county, that 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 that, that it wouldn't go ahead. Are you serious? Well, I don't know if you've seen what he said. Uh, oh, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I would. Uh, yeah. It's him. You should be asking that question to. Yeah. That, that's what he said, Michael. No, but you you think that the people in our day believe that the bypass is going to be cancelled? No, what I'm saying is, uh, well, if Fianna Fáil were to take office, well, well, what what the gentleman said, Timmy Dooley, if you yeah. like, I don't know if you have the words in front of you. Mm. He's saying that we need a significant investment, obviously, mm. in our transport infrastructure, and he's talking about public transport rather than some of the new roads and one of the new roads and and probably the most expensive project that remains to be completed in this country right now is the RD bypass because it will cost over 30 million euros Michael so I'm quoting his words not mine that's that's what he said. Okay Thomas Byrne Fianna Fáil TD on the line Uh, are you threatening to scrap the RD bypass as we're hearing there? No, Fergus is talking complete rubbish, and I'm pretty sure the people of RD realise that as well. They're all concerned, what, he said. Well, look, he's not concerned at all. What happened here is, and this is this is just really acting, really. I mean, what happened here is that the Fine Gael press office 
two days ago. Mm. Uh, defence being the, uh, the attack being the best form of defence issued statements similar to what Fergus has issued on behalf of almost all of their TDs. Every TD in the country. So this is what's happened. Fergus mm. didn't issue this statement himself. Mm. The Finnegade Press Office looked up. No, I did issue project, it. I did issue project it project in his area and wrote, copied and pasted a press statement uh, mm. in relation mm. to this. Now, the only place they didn't do it was Mead East because it would be right not to do it because we're waiting on the Slane bypass mm. and we're waiting on the work there at Primus and when people are stuck in traffic every day in the end too. So if there's a, to be a reprioritization of road programmes, they should certainly look at those projects that are stuck or indeed the Northern Cross route in Drogheda, mm. uh, which wasn't given any funding by the government. They're the projects at Fergus. The RD bypass is happening. The planning is underway. It's going to happen. There's yeah. nobody can stop that now except well, the government who have taken a very long time with it. Um, but what about the other projects there? That well, I think, Michael, uh, what Timmy do, I, I welcome Thomas Burns' commitment to the RD bypass, and I would like to get his party's commitment to it, because he is talking about, your, your spokesperson is talking about reprioritising roads, and he says some of the new roads that, that are not going to be built, and that's what he's saying. So I think it's right and important that we should make sure that people are aware. Fergus, why is it every Finnegale TD in the country issued the same press release? Well, because we're very concerned that that Fianna Fáil and government will affect <laughs> word the same projects like this project. <laughs> Sorry. They're, 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 you can't take this stuff seriously because it's just rubbish. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I mean, you can laugh all you want to there, guys, but the facts are that's, that's <laughs> Timmy Dooley's statement. That's that's Timmy Dooley said you can laugh away. Oh my God! Uh, I'm not laughing at it. I'm saying I'm that I want I want that road built, and it's going to cost the longer it's delayed, and if Fianna Fáil delay it, it'll be even more expensive. It, it will be the most. Uh, you're you're acting the maggot, aren't you? Well, Michael, uh, I don't know if this is, <laughs> is an interview or you, or not. Yeah. Like you seem to be doubting uh, when I'm quoting to you directly yeah. what Timmy Dooley said. Mm. You're laughing at what he said, I presume, not at what I said, because you know, uh, or are you? You know. Yeah, I think I, I think you're stretching it. You know, uh, and I, I think I'm Thomas Byrne is right. I'm I think it, Thomas Byrne is right when the Finnegan Spin doctors get together and write up a press release for every single TD in the country and localise it. You're talking about nothing other than spin and bluster, and it's very well, bad politics. You're, it's very bad politics. You're supposed it, it, to be a fair interviewer, yeah. And if you're fair. You will accept either or reject that that's what Timmy Dooley said. I don't think Timmy Dooley mentioned the RD bypass, did he? No, but he said, he said he would reprioritize some roads. Yeah, so, so, so that leads you to issuing a statement. Did you issue the statement yeah. or did the Finnegan Press Office? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. you issued a statement yeah. then uh, that was identical yeah. to statements that were issued by other TDs but across you see, the country. Michael, there are other and roads in the country that would be affected. Yes, by this and, well. and, and when the other I roads. Think we should have. Pardon? When other roads were mentioned in press statements from TDs, let's say from Galway or whatever, you uh, deleted that and put in RD bypass. Is that okay, how it I works? Think, I, 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 I think you can say whatever you like. No, is that what I asked you a question? Is I, that I, how it works? You're to be an objective and fair interviewer. Mm. And yet you're, you're pouring scorn on my comments and you're, uh, you're, not, you're not accepting uh, the veracity of what Timmy Dooley said. And that's what he Fergus, the RD bypass is already at the stage where local residents are meeting with the county council to tie down loose issues about rights away and cul-de-sacs and that type of thing. Like, I mean, the truth is, the Drogheda Northern Cross route is nowhere to be seen. The same well, bypass is happening for the last seven questions. years. And the road at Primus Town in the N2, which affects commuters from Mid East and indeed from Drogheda, 
your own area is 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 nowhere to be seen. It may not happen at all. And these are areas where, where we oh, need investment. Where we, and whether we all go to electric cars or hybrids, we're still going to need all of these roads to make sure commuters as well as the. Let that, Fergus that, that, come back there. Yeah, uh, that's exactly my point. And on the same bypass, mm. I know you're a TD for 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 that part of Mead, but you don't seem to know that Mead County Council have made an application to onboard Planola. In, in, in a pre-application to, to identify what the issues actually are with Board Planola. And you may not exactly be what the issues County are. Council. No, hold on. Mead County Council are considering the addition of an east-west link to the north-south option, and that's what, that's, what it, that's what the consultation is bringing about, that there will be, and, and Mead County Council have to come up with a plan as to you know, and the problem, what is going to happen to the village of Slane if they don't put in the east-west link. And that's nothing to do with government. That has to do with the people. I am, I am perfectly well up to date with what's yeah. happening. So, so don't, don't you say that the government are delaying because... Well, the, 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 the point is, Fergus, the, the planning project. application was refused I'm in March 2012. It's now over seven years. and this well, is But who refused the planning application? On board Panola, and it's now seven years. That's the planning application. Okay, let's just step back for one second. Fergus O'Dowd, is the RD bypass not guaranteed? It isn't guaranteed if the funding isn't provided. Yeah, but... What, what, no, it, it, you see, it is... I thought there was a commitment to the funding. No, no, the point is the government... Did you not welcome the commitment to the funding? Did Dolores okay, Minogue can, not... Can I, answer, can I answer your question? Uh, the, the, the question is that the government are committed to the funding. Right. Due to... Now, just the next point, Michael, I want to make is that due to the issues which arose about people who are now living in the area and how they will be affected by the RD bypass, as, as was proposed. That is now being redesigned. And the cost has actually gone up from something like 20 million to 30 million. Sir? To try and facilitate, hold on, Michael, to try and facilitate what the actual people in the area yeah. want. Mm. So the contractor, the advanced contractor is going on site on the 6th of July to do the advanced works. And that the project then goes out to tender. And the tenders will be in uh, hopefully by the end of 2000. So is there a question mark over the RD bypass or not? There's no question mark at all. No question mark oh, over? Oh, no, not from our government, but there is from Fianna Fáil. That's the point I'm making. We're, we're, we're completely committed to this. In fact, some of my own constituents in Drum Conrad, I mean, the road starts in, in, in Mandus Town. Mm. Uh, we're completely committed to this. We want this road. We want. Well, let Timmy Dooley agree. We want the end. Timmy Dooley is 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 our environment spokesperson. So, what roads is he going the to? The only park? question, the only question mark over what the, the RD bypass, the N52 bypass, is the question mark that you and the copy and paste function in the Finnegale Press Office uh, has 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 used. That's what's happened. We've done uh, it's around the country. Finnegale is acting the maggot here because they're on the defensive on climate change. They're a big launch, and now they, they, they realise that they have been really missed. Thomas, your, your, your comments are, are, are contemptuous. The facts, the, are the, facts the facts are that the party is going to cut back on, on a number of new road proposals. That's what your spokesperson said, and what I'm asking, I welcome your commitment to this road and the other roads, but we want his commitment on them as well, and that's, that's it. The commitment has never been in doubt, and I think that you know this, and I think the idea that the Fine Gael Press Office would issue statements for every TD in the country on the same lines on every local project is absolutely contempt. All, ro- all new roads are threatened by your, by your spokesperson's statement. We should be fighting He has to identify roads that he is not going to build. This one is almost there and it needs to happen. Okay, got to leave there. Thank you both indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for Me the East and Fergus O'Dowd, uh, Fine Gael TD in Louth. 
As no doubt you've been hearing, uh, the CIV2 strike action across 38 hospitals, uh, the Central Mental Hospital in St. Eta's in uh, Portran has uh, been diverted, but only suspended until Tuesday and Wednesday of next week, unless uh, resolution is found uh, before then. Let's talk about what's happening with Stephen McMahon, who's a spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, before you talk about the dispute, what are you hearing uh, on the ground today? The HSE seem to be in a, a scramble to cancel appointments and postpone procedures yesterday and has been trying to reschedule today. Do you know if it's been successful in doing so or if people are, are going without uh, procedures? Well, we haven't heard any update yet. First of all, I might just say that we're glad that at least the strike hasn't uh, happened today. But as you quite rightly pointed out, if the talks don't go well over the next 72 hours, um, we'll be back square where we were uh, yesterday on Monday morning. So um, at the moment, as you say, the HSC are actively trying to uncancel, I think is the word they're using, uh, the previous cancelled operations. So I think the message for your listeners is if you had an appointment for today and nobody contacted you, well, go ahead, because then it has, you haven't been affected. Uh, otherwise, you just have to wait to get that um, prize call to say that everything is okay and to come on back in. However, we feel that... If it goes beyond today, it's very likely that people that were cancelled may have to wait some longer time to get rescheduled back into the system. Okay. Uh, Do you believe uh, that uh, all efforts were made to put in contingency plans? Uh, It seems as though it was uh, a bit of an oversight uh, to deal with uh, a strike in the belief uh, that people felt it would be called off. Well, I think you're right, and certainly that's the feeling I'm getting, and what I'm hearing over the last few days is the fact that I don't think people really fully appreciated the impact of these 10,000 workers in the actual work that they do and how they could actually impact on the overall operation of our uh, acute hospital system. I think that lesson has been learned now, and I would hope that that will focus minds uh, to try and find a respected and respectful uh, conclusion to this for all parties. But at the end of the day, the really annoying thing about this is, and I'm sure your listeners uh, might have some view on it, I just find it terrible that we have to go to the cliff face on all of these disputes. And the only ones that are suffering here are patients. Private patients weren't going to be affected uh, today. And, um, you know, know, it was only just uh, public patients in the 38 or so hospitals that have been identified. And I really think we have to do something about our industrial relations process so that patients are not put at risk. There are many people that may have had to make special arrangements to have gone for their operation today. They Travel very long distances, yes. Over long distances mm. and arranged to take off work or mm. family members to look after another family member. I mean, the, 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 uh, you know, the amount of uh, organiz- organising for some people is huge. Mm. And then it's all dashed in, in a phone call. So to be able to phone back and say, hi, George... Uh, just to let you know you're uncancelled, um, it may not be that easy for them to reschedule themselves. And the stress is untold. I mean, the idea of going under a general anaesthetic uh, before a surgeon comes at you with a scampel uh, really is a stressful thing for people to have to contemplate. And the last thing, despite not wanting to have to do it, the last thing you want is to have it cancelled. Absolutely. And, and the thing about it is, though, that there are the quiet cancellations that go on throughout the year. For example, if there's overcrowding in, in a, in a uh, if there's overcrowding in an emergency department, one of the um, safety valves there is to cancel 
an elective surgery so that the bed is available for somebody in the emergency department. So, you know, we have a huge, huge waiting list, over 700,000 people. That's almost one in every three people that have no health insurance. One in every three. Mm. And that's a very sobering thought. And I think that there's a campaign on Twitter for any of your, your, your listeners that may like to follow it called uh, Care, Hash Care Can't Wait. Share your experiences because these are consultants that are actually so concerned about it that they've started this campaign and we're supporting it in the interest mm-hmm. of patients. That's right. We heard from the consultants about that campaign last week. But in terms yeah. of uh, this dispute, uh, there's very significant questions to be asked of government and how government is behaving in that. This goes back to 2015 and the Lansdowne Road Agreement. Uh, and after years of a negotiation, it was finally agreed by arms of uh, the state namely the HSE and the Department of Health to increase pay for the 10,000 workers last August. That pay should have been increased in October or November at the very latest. We heard from opposition party leaders uh, this week. Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald saying that the government was dishonest. Uh, the Fianna Fáil leader, Michal Martin, saying that the government had acted in bad faith. Brendan Howland, who would have been the Minister uh, for Public Expenditure in 2015, responsible for drawing up the Lansdowne road agreement saying that they were not honouring that agreement that they were betraying the workers and Paul Bell Siptu this morning telling us this morning that he believed that the government is in breach of the Lansdowne Road agreement what are your thoughts on that? Well certainly what I will say is that we don't get in, involved in um, you know the negotiations on either side in, in, in industrial disputes but what I will say is, for what I know about the healthcare workers and that particular group of, of uh, frontline professionals, is that many years ago uh, they would have multitasked. You know, on a Monday they might have been doing cleaning, on a Tuesday they might have been doing portering, and on a Wednesday they may have been doing catering. Now they have broken into three different areas of specialty, and they have special uh, education and qualification to be able to do that expertly. And, you know, so their professionalism certainly has uh, increased. What I think is more important, I think, from our perspective is that there needs to be a sort of a sense of ethics in the way that business is conducted between the state and its citizens and those working in the system. Mm. That, uh, you know, you know, like that, that, that things are done on an ethical basis rather than on points of principle that at the end of the day will be negotiated around. But at the end of the day, people that are being affected by these sort of uh, situations are the patients themselves. And, you but know, I'm sure you agree, though, Stephen, that there, there are big questions for government to answer, given the impact that this has or the potential it has uh, to impact on patient care. Because uh, on one side, the government is saying it's a question of interpretation. On the other side, the union is saying we've an agreement with one arm of the government and the other arm of the government is welching on that agreement and refusing to fund it. Well, I think the whole basis of, uh, let's say, for instance, in a slightly different way, the language of uh, patient advocacy now, as I would practice and others practice, is the language of rights. And rights are upheld in law and agreements and international treaties and national, national laws and so on. And if you make an agreement with me and it's, within, and it's a lawful agreement, well, then, you know, it's important on me to uphold that agreement. And when agreements get broken trust breaks down and the worst thing that happens there is then 
that there's a, a, a mistrust between uh, the area of people that are working, our society and our government. And I think that this is why I think the really important thing here is for these um, practices to be done on an ethical basis so that we can all have trust in them. Okay, well, hopefully uh, they'll come to some resolution uh, today or over the course of uh, the weekend. Uh, But we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Stephen McMahon is a spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Close to 12,000 third-level students sought psychological counselling in the last academic year. That's twice as many as the 6,000 students who sought psychological counselling in 2010. This is according to data compiled by the Psychological Counsellors in Higher Education Ireland Group. Gertie... Rafferty is uh, the PCHI Chair and uh, Student Counsellor at DKIT and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Gertie, and uh, thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us. I suppose there's many ways uh, statistics like this can be interpreted. Uh, one way is uh, that there is better awareness, people are looking after themselves better, that services perhaps are more plentiful and uh, available to people, or it could be a case uh, of students feeling more pressure. Which do you think it is, or is it a combination of all of that. Uh, good morning, Michael. I think it's a mix of both, really. I think, um, yes, I think there's a lot less stigma around going to counselling services now. Um, people are more aware and able to talk about mental health issues, which, which is really, really good. But certainly there is a huge increase in, in students' um, presenting with anxiety. That is the problem that we're seeing is on the increase. And this is nationally and, and internationally. And I mean, there, mm. we don't really know why that is. I guess there's an increase in anxiety across the whole population. I mean, if you just even look at the whole climate change thing, everybody's worried about even the future of the earth. Now, mind the future of economies and jobs mm. and everything else. And I think students in particular seem to be absorbing that. And are they feeling anxious in themselves because of it, uh, that they would need psychological counselling? They're all presenting with anxiety and some with very severe anxiety, panic Mm. attacks, not being able to sleep, eat, concentrate. So we're talking about fairly severe anxiety. Mm. But but surely not because they're worried about the environment or is that that one of the pressures in life that's feeding into that sense of anxiety? I think there's a whole sense. I think that's across society. But I think particularly for students, if we look at that age group, one of the things that certainly would be contributing to it is maybe the whole social media. You know, this whole perfect life, this representation of perfect life. That's all people see on media and and none of us are perfect and none of us have the perfect life and and if all we see is these images of a perfect life then we feel in some way we're failing which isn't true at all but that's what's being fed. So that certainly is one of the things. There's a lot of academic pressure. I mean the whole leaving third point system that whole race, yeah. um, a lot of our students, well, I, this is what I would find anecdotally, mm. if you ask them when did the anxiety start, uh, a lot of them will say fifth and sixth year in, in secondary school. Right, okay. So that whole kind of, you know, and I know teachers need to get the best out of their students, mm. but there's a lot of pressure put on and the points seems to be the be-all and end-all, which of course it isn't. That's and you've been measuring this since 2010. Do you find that uh, people are, are feeling anxious younger uh, as time goes on? Um, younger and, and, and more severely. So oh. 
certainly I've been here since 2006 or, or for the last 16 years and certainly depression was much more prevalent then rather than anxiety right. and this is a trend we're seeing nas- or internationally that anxiety now most people who present to counselling service the first thing they say is that they're suffering from anxiety mm. um, um, and yes I, I do think it is younger I think you will hear even young kids talking about being anxious which is a word I don't think I would have known as a child mm. um, so it's it, you know the language is there um, and that's a good thing and a bad thing but I suppose sometimes people can pathologize themselves as well I mean anxiety is a normal part of living mm. we need to be anxious in order to make the, us get things done um, we wouldn't get up in the morning if sometimes if we were a little bit anxious that we have to get to work on time mm. but I suppose it's using the anxiety with a big A you know that I yeah. suffer from anxiety rather than that occasionally I am anxious Okay and that's one of the reasons uh, they seek counselling anxiety depression there's a, a, a yeah. lot of reasons and if we assume for a, a minute uh, that nothing has really changed in the world but more people are seeking counselling that's a good thing and the benefit is uh, the support that they receive from that Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose we're in a very lucky position in student counselling in that we're available on campus. It's just another office in their college or higher institute of education. Um, We're accessible, we're free. That isn't the case often out in the community. If you go and look for counselling, it can be long waiting lists and, you know, very expensive. Mm. So, yes, I think we make it easier for them to attend, as we should. We have to remember that in this age group is the age of onset of serious mental health problems. Problems. We know that that age between 18 and 25 is when a lot of serious mental health problems emerge. So we need to be here to respond to that. And I think you take credit for the fact that students aren't dropping out of college. And not only that, but they're performing better by staying in college and dealing with their problems at the same time. Anxiety, as I understand it, uh, accounted for about half of the referrals uh, to you last year. Uh, And there was a big increase in uh, the number of people who are self-harming. That's right. I mean, those figures have gone up over the time. I mean... They, they continue to go up, um, but we would be recording those for the last number of years. At time, you know, you see fluctuations. Mm. A lot, a lot of people self harm. That can be um, cutting, uh, but it can also mean that they're at risk uh, of suicide. And, and that's certainly something in student counselling service that we we deal with all of the time. And and mm. that's what we're here for. And you're right to, to draw attention to the fact that most of the students who come and see us would say to us that they would have dropped out without the support of the service. Okay, uh, because so the first thing that goes wrong if you're if you're upset is that you you can't concentrate, mm. you can't get up in the morning, you can't get yourself into college, mm. and if you're anxious, you can't actually be around maybe crowds so much. Well, I, I take it if you're self-harming, you're probably in a, a dark place, and that's increased by six percent from five to eleven yeah, percent. Uh, there's been right. a, an increase in the number of people coming to you with identity issues from eight to fourteen percent. Uh, what are identity issues? Well, identity issues can. Anything, I suppose, we have to remember that the milestone that that age group, I suppose, is trying to firm an identity that they've started to develop in adolescence. So we all know and we're familiar with teenagers going through the different phases that they go through, and that firms up in in this age group. So there would be sexual identity issues, certainly, but there would also be identity issues around who am I and where am I and where am I going? What's my future? Right. You know, who, mm, you know yeah. often people who enroll in one program are very unhappy mm. in that program. Um, and 
yet don't feel that they can move from it. So, and especially our final year students then, who a lot of them would present with, I suppose, this anxiety about going out in the real world and where am I going and what am I doing and who am I going to be? Now I'm a student, but once I leave this safe zone, what am I and who so, am I? Yeah, and somebody studying law and feel they should have gone into engineering or something like that. Absolutely. But, but what about gender identity? Is that an issue? It's certainly an issue and it's, it, it's certainly on the increase, the whole idea of who am I and you know, certainly the whole transgender issue, but also students coming out as gay or bisexual or whatever, and the anxiety that that still causes. I think people think that we're living in a society now where this is is totally acceptable, and it's wonderful to see all the... Um, the are the events on for Pride Week and all of that, but there's still a lot of discrimination, and a lot of young people can really struggle with that. And when they come to college, is I suppose a new start. And do I now come out and be the person I want to be, or can I, or am I too afraid? Or, or is so, that when it should happen? Uh, can I ask you about uh, this uh, story uh, that's uh, made uh, the front page of the Irish Times today, uh, referring to the school uniform policy at St Bridget's National School in? Greystones. They're calling it a, a gender-neutral policy where the boys can wear the green tartan pinafore uniform if they wish and the girls can wear the grey trousers and a, a green jumper, the, what would have been traditionally the boys' uniform yeah. if they wish. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Yeah, well, I mean... The whole idea of forcing people to to wear anything. I mean, if you think about children, naturally will just love dressing up anyway. So, I mean, why should we confine them to one uniform and certainly we know from from all of the research recently that a lot of children are confused and feel that they're in the wrong body. Is there a risk that you'd feed that confusion that you'd give children very young children primary school children thoughts that they wouldn't have otherwise had? But you're, all you're talking about is wearing a different uniform. That's all you're saying. You're not saying that, that you, you have to become a different person, but you can say saying to them that it's okay to play at being different gender. And I suppose, you know, we would have said, you know, men could do with having some more of the traits of women and vice versa. And, and that's all we're trying. To, that's all something like that is trying to say. I don't think they're, they're just saying we accept you whoever you are. That's what a uniform policy like that says, mm. not we want you to change or we're encouraging you to change. And you would see that as a a positive thing that uh, perhaps uh, it should be looked at at all primary schools and secondary schools uh, and throughout society, I suppose, then. Well, just an openness, just an openness to allow people to be who they are, not to be forcing people into into boxes, you know, not saying you must be this way. Um, I think, you know, allowing people to be whoever they are is, is a very positive thing. Okay, uh, and undoubtedly, when people feel as though they're acting out a, a role uh, that their identity is not who they feel they are, uh, that it can lead to these other type of problems that you're talking about, whether that's anxiety or self harm or whatever. Yes, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's terrible, terrible agony for somebody to feel that they're in the wrong body. Is there a stigma at all uh, with? Uh, third-level students, uh, young people in general, uh, in seeking out help these days, uh, regardless of what their problem or what pressure they may feel? No, uh, having said that, our numbers are increasing and mm. the stigma is reducing. Our anxiety here as, as, as counsellors is always that we don't reach those people who are most in need, that sometimes the people who are most in need are the people who are least likely to seek out help. 
Well, so we can never be complacent or ever think that we're reaching everybody. And that's why we all would be involved in mental health campaigns in our campuses all of the time. It would be to reach those people who find it very hard to yeah. talk to somebody or to say there's something wrong. Uh, and the ratio of counsellors to students is about half of what it's recommended to be, is it? It is. I mean, mm. national, what's recommended is about one, one counsellor to 1,500. That's inter- the international best practice. And our national ratio is 1 to 2,600. And in some areas we're good. I mean, here in DKIT we have a very good ratio, but in some colleges it's awful. So you might have only one counsellor to six or 7,000 students. Okay. And that is not enough. Gertie, I have to leave it there. We've run out of time. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you, thank you indeed. Gertie Rafferty, Chair of uh, the Psychological Counsellors in Higher Education Ireland and a student counsellor at DKIT brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.